Our reading today comes from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 8, verse 6 through 22, and 9, 8 through 17. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she turned to him to, him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and, and she did not return to him anymore. In the, in the 601st year, the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried up. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful, fruitful and multiply on earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every breast, every creeping thing and every bud, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing of aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again cast the ground because of man and for the intention of man's heart and is every evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with, with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the living, the living stock, and every breast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the earth, it is every breast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. 
I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, there is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalms 90. 1 through 12. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You turn man to dust and say, Return, all children of God, of all children of man. You sweep them away as with a flood. They, will li- they, will like a- they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. For we are brought to an end by, an- by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. For all, our, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is the toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without Amen. New Testament, Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will always perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them of the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Our gospel passage this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and now you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be now so, for thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you today, open it to Genesis chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along with one, there are blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those is our gift to you. This is a familiar passage to a lot of us. If you've been in church for a while or even if you haven't been in church, the idea of Noah and the ark and the rainbow is one that a lot of people know. Sometimes the simple images that we see in life are the most lasting ones. And so as we get to the end of this story of Noah and the ark, we get two images that are very memorable in their simplicity, but also very rich in their significance. We get these two pictures of a bird and a bow. When God first created man, he brought Adam and Eve into this Sabbath rest, right? He created the earth in six days, and on the sixth day, the culmination of his creation was mankind. And for every day, it said it was morning and evening the first day. It was morning and evening the second day. It was morning and evening the sixth day, but then on the seventh day, God rested. And we don't hear that it was morning and evening the seventh day because that seventh day, that Sabbath rest with God, was intended to go on forever. The Sabbath of Emmanuel, God with us. Except that Adam and Eve fell into sin. They, they violated the sanctity of the temple that God had placed them in. And so we come to Noah as this kind of second Adam who was given this second Sabbath except that his Sabbath was almost like a year of jubilee. It was a year-long Sabbath inside this chest, this box, this ark, the presence of God being safe from the waters of judgment. And so Noah had this year of Sabbath rest inside the ark. But now the year of Sabbath rest is coming to an end. God was going to send Noah back out to do the work that he had given him to do. And we get these two powerful images of God's provision and God's story of redemption in the bird and the bow. Let me pray for us as we open God's Word. God, we know that throughout your Bible you take simple things, everyday things, and you use them to illustrate the story that you are telling in your world and in your church. We ask that you would open our ears and our eyes to hear these words afresh today, Lord. Amen. The rain has subsided. The floodwaters are going down. Noah and his family have been in the ark for a year. Remember, the floodwaters had ridden 30 feet above the tallest mountain in the area. And so now Noah kind of wants to know whether or not there's any land that's been exposed. So he sends out a bird. He actually sends out two birds. I, I only remember the dove, I'll be honest with you. As I, as I think about the story of Noah and the ark, I only ever remember the dove. 
But Noah sends out two birds. First is a raven, and I never think about that because all I think about is the story of Noah and the ark. But if you read the actual story in the actual Bible, it says right here in verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove. Now, that's not particularly nice and neat. It doesn't kind of fit with a cute little story, especially because it's not particularly well explained. So as I'm reading this, my first question was, what's up with the raven? And to be honest with you, I don't really know. I actually had to look it up. Why did a raven get sent out to just kind of go to and fro and like supervise the recession of the waters of the flood? It almost sounds like this first bird was a, a failed attempt but if you read it carefully, you, what you see is that the raven never actually came back. It got sent out, and it kept up its vigil until the floodwaters receded. Now, the raven is a scavenger. It feeds on seeds and insects, but it also feeds on carrion, on dead carcasses. The fact that it never comes back, I think, means that it was able to continue flying around and feeding. Basically, it was proof that the flood had done its job that God was wiping out all of, all of creation except for what was contained in this ark. And so the raven was kind of proof of concept or evidence that the flood worked. Now that's just one idea, and I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what the point of the raven is, and I won't pretend like I do. But, helpfully, I do know that it's not the main point of the passage. And the reason that I know that is because the raven is not picked up on by each of the four gospel writers thousands and thousands of years later but the dove is. Let me explain. Noah sends out a dove to see if there's any dry land yet. Why did he do this? I mean, he knew that the rain had stopped. He knew that the waters were going to recede. God had promised him that he was going to deliver him as this kind of second Adam into this sort of remade creation. I guess I can imagine if you're in a floating chest bobbing around on a, on a flood water, and you're waiting to see if you can exit on dry land, you know, can't you just wait? Can't you trust in the promises of God? You know, you'll, you'll know that it's over when, when the ride comes to a full and complete stop and the ark kind of rests. But Noah is checking on the state of the world. He's surveying what God has done. God told Noah to take every single kind of land animal into this ark so he knew that eventually they'd come out onto dry land. But it's understandable that he would be wondering when was this promise going to be fulfilled? When would deliverance come? And so Noah sends out this dove to see, okay, at this point, God, how close are we to new creation coming? How close are we to the promises of God being fulfilled? And so the dove go, goes out and it comes right back because the water is too high and there's no place for it to go. Seven days later, he sends it out again. The dove goes out. This time it comes back with an olive leaf in its mouth. This had to mean that the floodwaters had at least receded enough so that they were no longer 30 feet above the tallest mountain, but they were now at most about 20 to 25 feet off the ground. It's about how high an olive tree grows. So we can see that the promise is being fulfilled, that the floodwaters are receding. God was providing for them, and their time of rest was almost at an end. Seven days after that, the dove goes out over the water, and it never returns. Doves get mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, so much so that they actually became one of the symbols of Israel. 
They're one of the animals mentioned in the sacrificial system in Numbers and Leviticus when it talks about what kind of animal sacrifices to bring to the temple. They're mentioned in the, in the Psalms and the prophets, oftentimes in terms of the idea of, of doves sheltering against a storm or the, the sad sound that doves make being like humans crying. But here, here in Genesis 8, we're talking about a dove taking flight out over the water and never coming back. Want to know where else we hear about doves flying or a dove already in flight out over the water in the midst of death by water searching for new life? It's in Matthew 3.16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And, be, and behold, a voice from heaven came and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Noah was wondering by sending out the dove, when is this promised new creation going to come? When is the restoration of God's kingdom finally going to be accomplished? I think if we look at the entire scope of Scripture as one big story, we see that this restoration of creation is fully accomplished in the work of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is the true fulfillment of God's promises. He's the true fulfillment of God's promise to remake the world. Christ is the resting place where the dove can find somewhere to, hide his, to lay his head. God had said to Noah in Genesis 6, he said, But look, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into this ark, you and your sons and your sons' wives. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to, be, to keep them alive with you. That sort of implies that at some point you are going to come out of the ark. That the death that God is going to bring all around you will at some point lead to restoration and rebirth. And so as Noah waits in the ark and uses the dove to check on the progress of this restoration, the promised rebirth, we know because we have access to the entire Scripture that that promise is finally and fully fulfilled in Christ. Now, is this made explicit in the Bible? No, it isn't. Each of the four gospel writers mentions Jesus' baptism, and each of the four gospel writers mentions this Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending onto the water. But do any of them say, and this bird should remind us of not only the creation account in Genesis where the Spirit was hovering over the water, but also it should remind us of Noah sending out the dove. It doesn't say that, but these little narrative threads that you see when you start to read the Bible as a unified story these little narrative threads all point to Christ. They all get wound around each other and eventually culminate in Jesus. When God first made the world, its first stage was water, and then the dry land appeared, and God's Spirit was hovering over it like a bird. In the Noah story, God remakes the world, and the first stage was water, and a bird was hovering over it. And that bird eventually came to rest on the one who was, this is all driving towards towards Jesus. Now, that's the first of the two images that we get in this story. Talking about a unified picture of, of God's goodness to us throughout all of Scripture and kind of the, the narrative arc of redemption that the whole Bible shows us, we've got to talk for a minute about covenants. This is a doctrine word that sometimes makes people want to just tune out. But I have to tell you, I never understood how the entire Bible all worked together as one unified story until I learned how to read it as a series of covenants between God and his people. A, a covenant is like a, like a treaty. 
between two nations or a contract between two parties. Back when this book was written in the time of Moses, a covenant was usually understood as a treaty between two nations, a greater nation and a lesser nation, one that had just conquered the other. It's a declaration of a formal relationship. There are seven covenants throughout the Bible that provide kind of a, a skeletal framework on which the rest of the story of the Bible is hung. There's Adam and Eve, there's Noah and his family, Abraham, David, and then the new covenant centered on Christ. So, this covenant right here that God makes with Noah, God says to Noah in verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives. Bring with you every living thing that is, that is with you, of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they can swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. If that sounds familiar at all to you, it's almost exactly the same words that God sent to Adam when he established his covenant with Adam. It's the start of God's recreation of the world, and he gives the exact same command to Noah and his family that he did to Adam and his family, which is, Go out into my creation, fill this earth, and rule over it. And here God makes the first of several one-way covenants that he makes throughout Scripture. And these are absolutely a picture of God's grace to us. It's an example of God's grace to his creation. Some covenants are like contracts. If you do A, I will do B. If you do thus and so, I will do blah, 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 blah. This covenant that God makes with his people, there is no second part to it. There is no, if, I do, if you do this, I will do that. Or there's no, I'm going to do this, so therefore you have to do that. It's just a covenant of grace and mercy that God shows to his creation. He said, I'm going to do this thing, full stop. What's required of us in, in order for him to do that? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a promise and a guarantee it's the one way that this is going to work, says God. God simply says that he's going to do something. And the covenant that God makes with his creation through Noah is often called the, the covenant of common grace. God giving his grace to the entirety of his creation, not just the people who follow him. In chapter 8, verse 21, it says, this is after Noah had, had offered a sacrifice to the Lord. This is the first recorded animal sacrifice. God offered a, I'm sorry, Noah offered a sacrifice to God. And then in verse 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of, man, of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, none of these shall cease. If you're one of those people that believes that people are born innocent and good and are only corrupted by evil outside forces, you are in good company these days. It is a very popular view and has been since the time of Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the Enlightenment when he said those very words. Rousseau was a huge influence on Western thought, even on the people who founded this country. And his viewpoint is a very common one today. People are born good, but they are corrupted by outside forces. But Rousseau was wrong. I mean, at least according to the Bible, he was just wrong. It says here that the intentions of, man heart, of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
People are not born innocent and then corrupted. We are born as sinners, as wicked and fallen. We are by very nature children of wrath. And yet, and yet, even given that, even given the fact that every single person who's born is born a sinner and fallen and prone to wickedness, even given that, God is still gracious to his creation. He said, he said the seasons of summer and fall and winter and spring, day and night, none of these things are ever going to cease again. They're never again going to be interrupted by a righteous, massive flood. Chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and the beasts of, of the earth, with you and as many come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. He says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so the question is, as you read this, who benefits from this covenant? Because in some covenants, like the covenant that God makes with Abraham, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks, the children of Abraham, the followers of God, are the inheritors of this covenant. But in this case, with Noah, who benefits from this covenant? Literally everyone. Everyone who has ever been born, along with every animal, every tree, everything, all of creation. The blessings of God overflow not only to those who follow God, but in this case, to all of creation. This is what's called common grace. Now, here's a, if you haven't heard this phrase before, here's a pretty good definition of common grace from the Gospel Coalition. Common grace as an expression of the goodness of God is every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hands of God. This might include the delay of his wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity like rain and sun, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. Basically, common grace is all of the undeserved blessings that everybody gets. Rain, sun, health, happiness, the doctrine of common grace explains how someone can be totally depraved and yet still commit acts that are in some sense good and beneficial. And so even to those who never follow God, even to those who are openly hostile to God until the day they die, God's promise to all of his creation through Noah is that God will graciously withhold his judgment in the form of a world-ending flood. And what does he do to signify this covenant? Because with most covenants, there's always a, a sign and, and a seal or a signifier. How does he signify this covenant with Noah? He does it by hanging his bow in the sky. Now look, rainbows were not new. Like It, it wasn't like this is the first time a rainbow had been invented. By the time of the, for the original audience of this book, for the children of Israel, rainbows are just a phenomenon of weather and physics. And so they would have seen a rainbow before. But God uses everyday, recognizable things as illustrations of his grace to us. He points to everyday common things as signs and signifiers of his goodness, like a rainbow in the sky, or like the idea of a covenant, which at that time would have been well known, or something else that's simple and everyday, like bread and wine, to signify the new covenant as a hint of the redemption that was finally going to come. And so here, 
God is telling a bigger story. God is, it's not just I've put away my wrath and, and I promise even to my enemies that I'll never again remake my creation by a flood to wipe out all the evil that y'all are doing. Because I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, I'm hanging my rainbow in the sky. That's the way we interpret it. But there was no Hebrew word for rainbow, or at least if there is, it's not used here. He doesn't say, I signify this by hanging my rainbow in the sky. He says, I signify this by hanging my bow in the sky. And that's different. This is not like a pretty, pretty rainbow with like clouds and unicorns and sparkly glitter paint and little hearts over the eyes. This is an ancient weapon of war. This is a bow, like a bow and arrow. A bow is a weapon. You point the curved end at something. You notch an arrow into it and you let it fly. And where is this bow pointed? It's pointed at God. God is not saying, I am never again going to punish sin and evil. That in and of itself would be wicked and monstrous. There would be no justice if God just simply set aside all the evil that was ever done without it ever receiving punishment. What God is subtly showing by hanging the bow as he does, he's aiming it at himself. He's saying that he is going to be the one to ultimately bear the judgment for the brokenness of this world and for the sin of his people. The one who would come down from heaven would bear the weight of the necessary justice for the forgiveness of sins for his people here on earth. And I say very specifically that this is for the sins of his covenant people rather than for the sins of everyone ever born. For every person ever born, the judgment for sin is coming for every single one of us. Those who are within God's covenant family, his household of faith, can comfort themselves that they are shielded like Noah and his family were in the ark. They are shielded from the wrath of God by the blood of Christ. Because this, this common grace that God gives to all people through his covenant with Noah, this common grace falls short of salvation. All human beings still need the saving work of the Spirit, descending like a dove, alighting on the Messiah. We all still need that to reconcile with God. So, what does that mean? It means that the bow is great. The bow is awesome. The fact that God showed this covenant sign to his people, the bow is a beautiful, is a beautiful sign of God's grace. But the bow is useless without the bird. The common grace that God shows to his entire creation is wonderful. But in terms of our eternal souls, it is useless without the work of the Spirit and the saving power of the life's life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this common grace that God shows us, it can actually do a lot of wonderful things. It means that culture can advance. It means that civilizations can rise and spread because we can know that God is not going to, is not going to judge the world again in a flood. It means that more and more people can be born because God is not going to wipe out humanity for its very, very, very many sins. And it means that seasons can follow their natural course. Food can be grown and harvested and stored. Humanity can expand. Now, it also means that our harvest, our harvest as Christians, as Great Commission Christians, can be more plentiful. More people in the world definitely means more sin and wickedness, but it also means a larger field for God to draw his people from. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his field. Even the idea, this is the last bit of of common grace that we can see. We heard in Romans that the law of God is written on the hearts of everybody, not just Christians. The idea of right and wrong, God has written his law on the hearts of everyone. That in and of itself is a common grace because apart from that, none of us, all of us were at one time sinners and apart from God and without the idea that the law is written on our hearts to prick our consciences and show us that that we are sinners, without that, none of us would recognize our need for a Savior. And so even the fact that God writes the law on our hearts to convict us of sin and evil is in, in, even in that, that is a grace and mercy of God to point us to the need for our Savior. Noah and his family rested in the ark for a, a Sabbath year, for a year of Jubilee, in which nothing was required of them but to tend to their family and to rest in the provision and goodness of God. But then... After that Sabbath, God sent them back out to do the work he had given them to do. He sent them out armed with this promise that the fields were going to be abundant, that the harvest was going to be plentiful. And as with everything else, God's common grace to us is not an end unto itself. It has a purpose. And that purpose is to create conditions where we can participate with God in this mission that he has given us to draw people to himself. Frankly, it's to create the, con- the conditions where God's people have more opportunities to tell the rest of the world about King Jesus. We can see in this story of Noah that the God that we serve is good and gracious even to his enemies, even to people who are hostile to him. The God that we serve is good and gracious even to the point where he would lay down his life for his enemies, for people who were hostile to him, as God himself did in the person and work of Jesus. Every single thing that he does points to this unmerited favor, toward this grace that he has. Everything that he does propels us to sing his praises to others, telling others about this wonderful king that we serve, who has been so gracious to all of his creation. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you have hung your bow in the sky, that you have reminded us that your wrath and your judgment are delayed, that you have allowed all of your creation to flourish in days and months and seasons. We thank you for this common grace that you have shown to every man, woman, and child, every animal, every tree and rock. You are truly good. We ask that you would remind us, Lord, this week that the charge that you give to Noah to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and rule over it, is the charge that is still on us today and that it's paired with the idea of what Jesus said, to go into the world, this world that you have allowed to flourish and to spread, that we go into the world, that we make disciples, teaching them everything that he has commanded us. God, will you put that on our hearts this week and will you remind us as we go that you are always with us, that your grace is sufficient for us and that you are waiting for us at the end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.